All right. So we are in a series called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. It's uh, a series that's inspired by a book by the same title, a, a, a guy named Pete Scazzaro has written this book, and the subtitle is, um, William, you want to throw up that slide so I can read that subtitle? It's impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And the desire is to be a people who grow to become more like Jesus, who have opened our whole selves up to the Lord so that we can become the people he created and redeemed us to be. Okay, so I have a story to tell you. The year is 2017. I'm in Chiapas in southern Mexico with about 15 other Canadians, and we're flying back to Vancouver with a connection in Mexico City. I've just spent the last two weeks away from Lindsay and Isaiah. Evan's not born yet. And it's the longest I've been away from home. And I'm looking forward to just heading home, to seeing them, sleeping in my own bed, all those things. And so I'm messaging them saying I'm on the way. It's a good day. It's that day you just look forward to. We land in Mexico City at the airport, and we see that our, um, our 35-minute layover had been pushed back to an hour and a half. It could be worse, we think. Like, all right, that's not too bad. actually gives us a little more margin. So we run, grab some coffee, get some food in another area of the airport, another uh, wing, and then we head back to our gate. And as we walk back, I see something that I've been looking for, looking to buy. And so I stop to buy it, and I tell my group I'll catch up. Just a couple minutes. Just basically pick it, pay for it, and start walking. After two minutes, I'm on my way, walking back to the gate. I get to the gate, and no one's there. I look at my boarding pass and confirm that I'm in the right place. No one's there, not even flight attendants. I look around, and after a few minutes, some flight attendants come out. And they tell me, I'm sorry, but the flight just left. You missed it. Now I'm standing there and I'm in shock. I'm confused. I don't understand. And I realize what it means for me. And I start to feel sadness and anger. And uh, my Latin anger starts to bubble up and the strong, assertive, and we'll call it abrasive part of me starts to express itself as I speak with the airline representative who turns out doesn't like it when a brace of Alex speaks to them very much. And the best he will do for me is get me on a flight leaving nine hours from now, and they might make me pay for it because I missed the first, and it's apparently my fault. I was stuck. And it was as if I had hit a wall, and there was nothing I could do to move past it. I wasn't in control of where I wanted to be, And so these waves of sadness, of anger, regret, confusion, and even fear hit me. What if I do have to pay for this fight? It's not even my fault. Why do I got to pay for that? And I was waiting on things that were outside of my control to get me where I wanted to be. And I remember as I was waiting, I just and felt all of these different emotions. I felt the Lord say, Alex, you're going to get home. Just not when you want to. And I had to keep coming back to that. I'm going to get home, just not when I want to. Not on my timing. And I think if you follow Jesus long enough, you will find yourself feeling stuck, feeling confused, disoriented, and in pain. You will hit a wall that you can't just move past. 
that you can't just climb over. Not at least in your timing. See, the way of Jesus is a journey that is full of movement, action, starts, stops, detours, delays, and trips into the unknown. And recognizing the walls in our lives that we encounter and how we choose to respond to them will determine whether Jesus leads us through those walls or not. Today's guiding passage speaks to that idea. It comes from James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. And this is what it says. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Our Father in heaven, give us ears to hear from you today. Give us eyes to see what it is you're doing in our lives. And give us a heart to trust you in the confusion and in the unknown. We pray this for your glory and our joy. Amen. James is writing this letter to a Christian community that are being oppressed by people in positions of power in the first century. Now, trials that he's referencing here, they can refer to both external tests that are found within the providence of God, but like Jesus being led into the wilderness and tempted there for 40 days or after 40 days. And it can also refer to internal or, or external temptations to sin. The trials test something specific, James is saying. They test your faith. More specifically, they test your belief and trust in God's goodness and ability to get you through that trial. Why would we rejoice, though? Why would we consider it all joy to know that our faith is being tested? What's the reason that we should rejoice? The reason we can consider it all joy is because these trials that we will face in life serve a purpose. The trials are like the manure that is placed on soil that is intended to bring about growth, but it stinks at first. God wants to make you whole. Sin done by you and to you has wounded and hurt you, but God has a vision for your life that includes restoring you. And it starts with knowing and relating to his son, Jesus. And what God intends to do is make you mature and complete. James wants Christians to see that through a test, to see through the test, sorry, to what it can do for your spiritual formation, for who it can form you into, because that's what he's concerned with. He is concerned with who these people will become with the result of the test. And God intends to use the very test of faith that you are facing to bring about a transformation in your life so that when you've passed through them, you actually look more like Jesus in your character, in the way that you love God and love others, in the way that you trust God, in the way that you inhabit and live in this world. He wants to make you completely whole so that you lack nothing in character, in your behavior towards others, in your relationship with God. Mature and complete is a person 
who is whole and emotionally and spiritually healthy. They're not lacking anything. And so the reason you can consider it all joy is not because the things that we face, these trials are good in and of themselves. Many times they're not. But rather, God in his kindness won't let any of those things go to waste in his commitment to you and to this world. God in Jesus is restoring all things to himself, and no trial, no suffering will thwart his purposes. In other words, to paraphrase Scott McKnight, the basis for this joy is a confidence in God's goodness, in God's sovereign control of history and eternity, and in one's inner transformation. And it's in this confidence that you're enabled to follow Jesus through these different things you'll face. So what is it that, we're, what, that is needed? Well, James will say that we need perseverance. Perseverance and patience in James's letter are nearly synonymous. So picture a slow-burning wick that does not go out. Picture a long-distance runner. He, he's not sprinting, but he's running this race with endurance. We need this patient and steadfast trust in God, this confident hope in his goodness, in his sovereign control over history as we face these trials. But as it turns out, we actually need more than that. Because immediately following this passage, in James 1, verse 5, James will say this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. So we need this patient trust in God's goodness and timing, but we also need wisdom. Wisdom to recognize that the specific trials and walls that we've hit are part of God's pathway and formation process intended to make us whole and complete. And we need wisdom to know how we should respond to them. Now, here's what I want to do with the rest of this morning. is I want to try to give us a, a spiritual map for growth, a map for spiritual growth, I should say, where you could try to place yourself in and then show you where we often hit a wall in our formation and then paint a picture for what God can do in us if we trust him and he leads us through that wall. All right, so in their book, The Critical Journey, Stages uh, in Life of Faith, in the life of faith, Janet Hagberg and Robert Gulick, they describe the journey of faith that we embark on with Jesus as consisting of six stages and the wall experience. So you'll see them behind me, and it was just too hard for me to make like a, a circle, but that's typically how they present it, and it's, it's moving you know, clockwise, all right? So the first stage is awareness of God. And it's this beginning of this journey. It's the beginning of the relationship with him. And in this stage, we are typically humbled by God's great love for us, that he's actually interested in our lives, that he cares for us. This, this stage is marked by this humility and awareness of him. The second stage is discipleship. And just as a, as a point, we'll typically identify with one of these most where we are, but it doesn't mean that there aren't a few of them that you might resonate with. So discipleship is the second stage. This is where we are learning more about who God is, his character. We're learning about Jesus, his way, what he calls us to live in. We follow Jesus. This is when we commit to being in community. And so a lot of the stage is like you feeling this excitement over learning a whole new way of inhabiting life, the world that we've been put in. And then this third stage, they all call it like the productive life, but you could think of this as the time when you begin to actually take responsibility and serve. 
You begin to exercise different gifts or talents that you have to serve others. And so it's very exciting because you're doing, you've learned these things and you're beginning to implement them into your life and you feel this excitement, this momentum, this joy. But then comes the fourth stage. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to just describe these and, then, and, and briefly hit on the wall and then I'll actually flesh it out once I get past stage six. Stage four is the inward journey and the wall. These two are closely related. Sometimes the wall comes first and then the inward journey or the other way around. First the inward journey, then the wall. There's this inward journey that we end up going on. And the wall has often been called the dark night of the soul. It unsettles us. Because so much of what we learned in stages one, two, and three that we experienced doesn't seem to work in the way that it did, the way that it used to. So you could be reading scripture, and it used to be so exciting and bring life and give you direction and inspiration that day, and now it doesn't, but you haven't changed anything. And this begins to unsettle us, and it also begins to reveal other things that I'll touch on in a sec. The fifth stage is the outward journey. Once we've actually moved through the wall, God decides when we move through it and, and how. He's the one who, who is sovereign over that. When we do, we begin to re-engage with serving and all those other things, but we do it from a different place. They suggest that we do it from a place where we're now grounded in who God says we are. We've discovered God's profound and unchanging love for us. We recognize those areas of our lives that, we're, that are broken or disconnected, and we recognize God's deep love for us in spite of that. And now we don't serve out of this feeling of like control, but actually out of wanting to love others. And that brings us to stage six, a life of love. Our whole lives are about surrender and obedience to God's perfect will. And we see this in Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, let your will be done, not mine. There's this desire and recognition. He's got one, th- this, this desire to not go to the cross, and yet the deeper, stronger desire is to do the will of God. And he does that. And it's motivated by love to actually want to obey and trust his heavenly Father. Okay, so that's the, just a quick summary of what that is about. Now, here's the thing. Every one of us will experience the wall. And at some point, not everyone will face it, but not everyone will pass through it. And our walls, all of us will have face different walls, these dark nights of the soul. But God is the one who wants to lead us through it and form us. Peter Schizero, he provides a helpful explanation by, by what is meant by the wall. And this is what he says. For most of us, the wall appears through a crisis that turns our world upside down. It comes perhaps through a divorce a job loss, a death of a close friend or family member, a cancer diagnosis, a disillusioning church experience, a betrayal, a shattered dream, a wayward child, a car accident, an inability to get pregnant, a deep desire to marry that remains unfulfilled, a dryness or loss of joy in our relationship with God. He'll go on to say, we question ourselves, God, the church. We discover for the first time that our faith doesn't appear to work. We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it is on the line. We don't know where God is, what he is doing, where he is going, how he is getting us there, or when this will be over. So in that stage, we're 
many of us may actually be right here. We've learned about the things of God. We've learned how to follow Him, how to spend time with Him, how to serve. We've discovered our gifts, and yet we're experiencing this confusing, confusing stage. See, the boxes that we tried to put God in, the deals we tried to make with God won't work. God, I'll tithe 10% of my finances. You make sure that I have a good job. And then you do that. And then you lose your job unexpectedly. And you're like, oh, maybe I'll find something quick. And then you don't. And you're stuck waiting. God, I'll trust you with my romantic life as long as you provide someone for me by my 30s. And then you're 35 and you're like, "Uh, God, what is this singleness doing here? It's an unwelcome guest in my life. God, I'll serve you. I will pray. I will bring my kids to church and make you make sure they turn out okay. You pray for them. You model faith. But one of your kids just doesn't seem interested in Jesus. You showed up for them. You prayed with them. You saw, you saw them even take steps of faith. But now it seems like they're just, as they live on their own, they're not interested in any of that. And they're hiding much of their life from you. And you feel the sense of grief, disappointment, confusion. Like, Jesus, I tried all that I could. Why haven't you moved in them like you did in my other kids? I was faithful. I followed your lead. I trusted you. I don't understand it. It doesn't feel like I'm flourishing. I feel like I've been led into a dry and weary desert, dry and weary land. See, the wall strips us of the games and deals that we try to make with God. And we realize we cannot control God. We cannot control everything. That's the experience of the wall. It can feel like God is absent. And you don't understand it. So the common refrain that you will be saying to God is, I don't understand God. I don't understand what you're doing. What is going on? Where are you? And we'll experience this crisis of faith about what we believe, about the one that we put our trust in. Like, was it all in vain? Was it actually all fake? Is it really real? Is he really good? I think many of us are here in that place. And we just haven't had language to use for it. We're stuck, though. We've gotten stuck because we've hit that wall in our discipleship with Jesus. And some of us have actually considered just walking away from the whole Jesus thing because it just, you can't reconcile it. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't seem to be working. And you'll remember what we read a few weeks ago where Jesus says, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. He says that in John chapter 7. What I'm experiencing is not living, satisfying water. It's bitter, deeply disappointing water. The pain is so disorienting that at first it blinds us to what is happening. This Jesus thing must be false. This just can't work like this. It cannot be it. This cannot be it. And to extend that analogy that Jesus uses, that whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. John will explain just afterwards that the rivers of living water is the Holy Spirit who comes and makes his home in us. And to extend that analogy just a bit, the Spirit is this river of living water. And there's a picture, uh, William, just after that. Yeah. Jesus calls us to put his, our trust in him, to get, to get into his boat. You can see a tiny little boat there, right? 
And he calls us to get in there. And we know what he's promised us, the life that he's promised us. But we cannot control what we're going to pass through as we go through that. And so for many of us, that stage one, two, and three, becoming aware of God, his love for us, and Jesus beginning to learn and follow him and serving. These are parts of the journey that they feel really good. And this, it's sunny. It's beautiful. You're like, man, I can't believe that this is the life that I've been brought into. This is amazing. I have to tell others about this. But as we continue to keep going down, downstream, and the sun begins to set, and eventually the fog rolls in, and the current gets stronger and the waves rougher, and we enter into unknown territory and realize that we're not in control, we start to feel like maybe this wasn't a good idea. Like, hey, this isn't what I signed up for. And this is where we can easily get stuck, where we've hit that wall and we just don't know it. And I think one of the things that happens within us is we easily forget that becoming people who love like Jesus, who look like Jesus with emotionally healthy spirituality, it actually demands going through this wall. It's required in our lives. God promises Abraham that he and Sarah will be a blessing to all the nations, that they will have descendants as many as the stars that they can see in the sky. And then for 25 years, he and Sarah proceed to have zero kids. You promised, God. Where are you? Like, you said this, and I trusted you. Where's the fruit? Where is it? You can see this in the, the disciples in their lives. As they follow Jesus, they all got stuck at one point. Judas himself grows disillusioned with Jesus. Jesus' claims of being the Messiah and the actions that followed that, they didn't seem to line up with what Judas expected, and he got stuck. And eventually it led to Judas quitting Jesus. So he hopped out of the boat. In fact, you could argue that Good Friday and Holy Saturday they're the clearest examples of a crisis of faith moment in the life of the disciples. That was the wall. Because what happened did not fit their expectations for who God is supposed to be and what he's supposed to do. It didn't make sense that the Messiah was to be crucified. So they couldn't make sense of that. Good Friday was devastating to them. That's why on the, sat uh, on the Sunday, even though they've heard that apparently Jesus has risen, there's these two disciples walking on the road to Emmaus, and they don't really believe it. They're confused. There was this crisis of faith moment that they had. They had no control over what was happening. They were shocked, sad, confused, and more. But the resurrection of Jesus would mark the end of that wall, and they never got to decide when that would happen. That was something God decided. The trials that you and I face are different, but we ourselves are not so different from them. Some of us have dropped an anchor because we can't keep going down that stream. Like, no, 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 I don't like where this is taking me. Drop the anchor. Let's just make sure we stay here. Here is better than there. I don't like what's over there. God can't be here, so I'm not going to move. And you just stayed there, and you're still in the boat, but you haven't moved in a long time. You haven't grown. You haven't matured beyond where you already were. And some of you actually have tried to turn around and paddle upstream against 
the leading of the Spirit, and you're exhausted, and you're stuck. But you're trying to resist where he's wanting to lead you in life. Now, still others have actually hopped out of the boat altogether. Friends or family members who've chosen to uh, move on because they couldn't understand what God could be doing or see him at all in that moment. See, at the wall, we're going to think, God cannot be here with me. He's just not here. I can't feel him. I don't see him. The pain and the disorientation just blinds us from seeing what God wants to do in our lives, that he's trying to do a transforming work in us. In fact, he's the only one who can lead us through that wall that you are experiencing right now. And the reality is actually closer to something like this. There's another picture. We are in this boat, and he is in there with us. But we actually can't see him because we're looking in a different direction. From our vantage point, we can't see that he's actually in there with us. But he is there. And there's this slow, deep work that he wants to do in us. And because it's his work and not ours, it's God who decides how and when we will go through this wall and when it will end, when we'll come past through that fog. Now, there's this promise that James says is available to followers of Jesus when you read James 1, verse 12. He says, Blessed is the one who perseveres under the trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the lord has promised to those who love him flourishing are those who are steadfast in their trust of god's goodness as they face tests because when they pass through it god will give them the crown of life because the reward for a life of love with god is the crown of life flourishing the fullness of life You're blessed when you persevere under the various trials, under these tests, as you go through the wall with God, though it feels like he isn't there. You're blessed because you're actually winning at life. You're being molded and shaped and sculpted into someone who is more whole and complete as you entrust yourself to Jesus, as you allow the Spirit to lead you through this unknown territory. There's a promise here that we actually get more life, his life in us. So what does it look like when you've actually passed through this wall? What would it even look like to know you're making progress? I want to offer four things that kind of give you a bit of an idea. You're making, you're moving through that. The first is this, a deeper awareness of our own brokenness. People who have had God lead them through the wall have a remarkable humility. I think this is why Jesus will say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They recognize their need for the mercy and kindness of God. They are simultaneously aware of how deep their sin goes in their lives. And they also have this deep awareness of the love of God for them. In the wall, all you have to cling to is God's love declared to you by the cross of Jesus Christ. Few other things make sense. But one thing that gets reinforced in this place is that Jesus, the good shepherd, shows us his love by laying his life down for us. And so one of the amazing things about the wall is maybe you begin to pay attention to your emotions 
But at the wall, you begin to learn that you cannot live solely by your emotions, that it doesn't determine everything. They're an important gauge, but they don't determine all your decisions and everything. That there's a truth about who God is as revealed in Jesus that you cling to. By this we know love, that Christ died for us. Your sins, your brokenness are the very things that actually remind you of how great your worth is to God because Jesus died to set you free from these things, to heal you, to save you in the fullest sense of the word. And because of this, you actually have this freedom now from judging others. We all have thoughts that run something like this at some point in our lives. I can't believe they call themselves a Christian. How oh, people from that church are so superficial. They're so immature. They're so, you insert whatever it is. Oh, that church, that, they're dying, aren't they? Here's how you can gauge whether you're actually making progress in your life in this area. When someone judges or criticizes or insults you, how do you respond? Do you pull back and then attack them? Or do you begin to act like they don't exist? I'm not going to give you any energy. I'm done with you. Give them a cold shoulder. Those with this deep awareness of their brokenness can be so secure in God's love for them that you can criticize or even insult them. And there is something within them that would actually say, it's worse than you think. But somehow, by God's love, he's actually shown me he won't leave me. He's so patient and kind towards me, it blows me away. You're secure in his love, but you recognize that there's still sin in your life. So you can handle those criticisms. The second thing is a greater capacity to live in the mystery of God. We like control. I like control. We like to know what's going to happen and when. We like to tell God how our lives should work. And yet God is not someone that you can tame or control. And it reminds me of the book, The Chronicles of Narnia. When Susan is afraid, she discovers that Aslan, the Christ figure in the book, is a lion. And she's speaking to this character named Mr. Beaver, and she's like, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I'll tell you. See, God is everything that Scripture reveals about him, but he is more than that. The whole of Scriptures cannot contain all of him. All the Gospels we're told cannot contain all the things that Jesus did in his earthly ministry. And one of the great gifts of the wall and going through it is this deeper appreciation of the parts of God that we cannot fully comprehend or know. St. Augustine once said, if you understand, it is not God you understand. He recognized that there was something about God that you cannot fully know, that he is knowable, and yet you cannot fully know him. Most of the time, we have no idea what God is doing. And not one of the disciples, even with Jesus telling them this would come, saw the crucifixion as his enthronement on heaven and earth. 
Not one of them saw Jesus' death as victory over Satan's sin and death when it was happening. They just didn't understand. It didn't make sense. The God we worship and follow saw fit to become human, to win a decisive victory over the powers of evil, over human sin, and even death by becoming human in Jesus of Nazareth and suffering and dying for us and rising for us. The incarnation, the cross, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus won that victory for us. That was his idea. It's marked the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven on earth. Death was defeated through Jesus' death. That evil was defeated not with force, but with sacrificial love and forgiveness. Jesus teaches us that there is more at work than we can recognize, and God is far more mysterious than we give him credit for. We like to have him in a box, but he's not going to stay in the box. We cannot control him, and we cannot control how our lives will go, and that is scary. But we do have control over who we will entrust our lives to. And people who have gone through that wall experientially know and can speak to the fact that we might not be in control, but God is in control, and he is good. He's trustworthy. The third thing is an increased capacity to wait on the Lord. I don't like waiting. Waiting is not something that is my spiritual gift. Somehow the Lord said, oh, that one we're not going to give to Alex. We're going to make him practice it all the time. How many times have things gone wrong in our lives, though, because we failed to wait on him? We just didn't want to wait. Abraham had to learn how to wait. He had this promise that he was given that he'd be the father of nations, but after 11 years of waiting, he took things into his own hands and fathered a son with his maidservant, Hagar. And the conflict that ensued between Hagar, Sarah, and him was terrible, and it divided that family. And he had to wait another 14 years before Isaac was born. Moses learned how to wait. He had this conviction, this sense of justice. It actually led him to kill an Egyptian, and he failed to free the Israelites. So he spent the next 40 years learning to wait on God. Hannah learned to wait. After years of infertility, unanswered prayer, and even hurtful comments, God heard her prayers and gave her a son, Samuel, whom God would use to actually lead Israel and transform them. And Jesus learned to wait. In the wilderness, Jesus resisted the temptation to act before his father's time in making him king of heaven and earth. Though he was invited to do that very thing, to speed up God's timeline. He refused the option of forcing God's timing, abandoning God's way, and instead learned to wait for God's work to be accomplished in God's timing in his life, even when it meant going to the cross. Jesus was willing to surrender his life was willing to surrender even his life in the belief that God the Father would vindicate him and confirm he really was the Messiah, the Son of God. We can trust God's work will be accomplished in our lives, in his timing as we wait on him, just as he did with Jesus. 
Waiting is hard. And one of the things that Peter Scazzaro says is going through the wall breaks something deep within us, that driving, grasping, fearful self-will that must produce, that must make something happen, that must get it done for God just in case he doesn't. One of the things that you can know is if you're moving through the wall is that you begin to recognize, I'm actually able to wait on him more now than I used to. And the fourth and final thing is this greater devotion to him through detachment. More than anything else, the wall cuts off our attachments to who we think we should be and who we falsely think we are. We learn that while we must pay attention to our emotions, they cannot be the sole determinant for whether we will obey or trust Jesus. And the, there's, this, uh, there's this YouTube channel that I, uh, somehow got suggested to me in the algorithms, and it is about uh, like lobster uh, uh, like hunting or uh, whatever you call it. <laughs> it's not the right term. Clearly, I know a lot about this. But here's what I did learn. Lobsters, the longer they live the larger they grow, duh, but usually the more barnacles will actually grow on them. Now, barnacles don't initially harm the lobsters, um, but some of these barnacles attach and grow on or close to their eyes or on their arms in places that when the barnacle population grows too large, actually begins to negatively impact their movement or their vision or mobility and their ability to hunt. And unless these larger clusters are removed, they'll keep growing until that lobster dies because they just can't do what they need to to live. And we are like that too. As we follow Jesus, we inevitably get attached to people and things in ways that, give, uh, that we'll give an inordinate amount of devotion and attention to. And we pick up these unhealthy patterns of thinking and behaving. They are destructive, but they're so slow we don't really notice it. They slowly blind us and limit our ability to live as citizens in the kingdom of heaven. And because of that, we'll barely notice how attached we are to something until God removes it. It's like you don't realize how attached you are to your phone until you misplace it. Until you try to take a break from it. Then you realize, man, like, I keep doing a pocket check. Where, where did I leave it? And it bugs you. We, re- we rarely realize how much we are like Gollum in calling something precious until it's been removed from our lives. We say, God, I need that thing. That thing is special to me. It's precious to me. I must have. And you insert whatever that thing is that you're fixating on thinking about that job, a person, a relationship, that next stage in your career, a home, vehicle, they become so big to us that they obscure our vision of life and who we are and cause our loves to be disordered. And over time, we actually lose sight of who we are really called to be. And what Jesus wants to do is actually cut off those barnacles Remove those things that are actually hindering you from actually living the way you were supposed to. From experiencing the life that you were supposed to. To realizing, fully realizing who he created you to be. 
As you move through the wall, Jesus removes what is false about you. But he also infuses more of his life in you, more of his joy, more of his love, more of his peace. And you cannot receive these things that he wants to give when you're grasping so tightly onto these other things. See, what Jesus is ultimately after is union with you. Abide in me and I in you. That's what this life is about. I created you. I adopted you. I forgave you. I gave you the Holy Spirit so that you could live with me, so that you could be made whole and invite others into that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion. And it's fitting because communion is a declaration that you have been united to Jesus, that God has united himself to you. That by his death, Jesus did something in the unseen realm to move you from isolation, separation, and spiritual death into intimacy, reconciliation, and life with God. In Jesus' death, God was reconciling and uniting himself to us. 